Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be with you again today. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good, John. Today we're going to do something new. We thought it might be fun to listen to some evangelical preachers and then break down their arguments here on the show. We're going to call these episodes Dissecting the Preacher, or in this case, Dissecting Victoria Osteen, because we are going to focus on her today. Victoria Osteen is a preacher at the megachurch, Lakewood Church, in Houston, Texas. She is married to Joel Osteen, who is the main pastor there. We're going to play some clips of her speaking, but first I wanted to give just a little overview of this quote-unquote ministry. Lakewood Church is the largest church in the United States. They draw something in the range of $90 million a year. 90% of that income comes from the followers of the church around the world and those attending in person. From what we could find, it appears that they give less than 1% of this money to charities, a fact I'm sure Jesus would just be thrilled about. Joel and Victoria Osteen share the preaching duties at the church and on their world tours. Tickets to see the Osteens at their live services on tour can cost as much as $850 and go much higher on the secondary market. The services are highly choreographed with emotionally crescendoing music and inspirational words. From a theological perspective, the Osteens are not very in-depth. Their belief statement is vaguely Christian and charismatic, but they certainly shy away from any serious theology. They opt for more vague, motivational teachings. But today we're going to feature the words of Victoria Osteen just because she's the first one we started listening to, but we aren't singling Victoria out. We plan to get to Joel in time as well. I was struck by how kind of vacant her message is. I mean, to me, it's it's only Christianity like in words, but so much of it is just kind of very generic platitudes that you could pretty much ascribe to any religion or not a religion. Um, it was just a lot of encouraging statements. And um, I don't know, that's the overall impression I got from it. What, what about you? Yeah, I feel it's very culturally conditioned by the United States. Like their gospel wouldn't really function well outside of a capitalist society that we live in today. It sort of has hints of new age teaching. Um, it's very like positivity based. It's about um, self-affirmation. Um, it's like figuring out uh, practical ways to unlock God's blessing in your life or to be successful, but in ways that are not practical necessarily but in ways that like seek supernatural help so i think that it's interesting in those ways but it's not a conventional form of christianity like in a in a reformed church that you would find it's very not doctrinal it's hard to even tell sometimes what passage she's referring to or she's very in and out of the bible but not studying a real text kind of just uh using the uh, scripture as like a another illustrative point for whatever her purpose is. Yeah, and we'll go through um, some of the clips so you can hear uh, some of the things she has to say, but I wanted to just read, just quickly going through the YouTube channel, reading some of the titles of, this, of her sermon so you get an idea. How are you handling worry? Um, build people up with words. 
Um, learn to love well. These are, um, again, just to me, just generic platitudes. And when you actually hear what she has to say, it doesn't really go much beyond that. The church I grew up in was very heavy on theology, very Bible-based. And um, honestly, at now as a skeptic, it's easier for me to respond to that sort of Christianity because that's what I'm familiar with. And I like, oh, they're making a claim from the Bible, so let me go to the Bible and um, and see how it stacks up. But with um, with Victoria Osteen and Joel Osteen, it's it's much harder for me to do that because a lot of what she says, I don't necessarily disagree with. It's more about encouraging other people and 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 try to avoid worrying and, and just things like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, her husband, I think, grew up producing for his father television sermons, and I don't think that she's trained uh, as a, a theologian or as even a Bible scholar you know, even at an evangelical institution. So, like, they're not trained pastors. Yeah, and and part of the reason we're doing this is because of just how popular it is. Um, I mean, there's just massive interest in this, and um, these are very wealthy people. They're making an enormous amount of money from these things. The donations are pouring in. I think I mentioned on a previous episode how um, they came to Yankee Stadium and sold out Yankee Stadium. And... um, they're kind of um, right on the line of being prosperity gospel. I think some of the clips will play, um, deal with that a little bit. But um, this idea that you, the more you give to us, the more you will get back in return. And um, with a very flimsy ba- biblical backing on that. And I just want to say that, you know, these videos, uh, you don't get a sense of the visual that we're seeing of... Uh, her standing in front of this like mega church with thousands of people packed in every pew um, and like the globe behind her and her fancy outfits and the the high tech, um, you know, lighting and everything. So yeah, it's a, it's a big production. You can tell a lot of money went into this. It's perfectly scripted. The, uh, you know, the makeup, the jewelry, uh, and like you said, the the globe in the background, it had a, kind of a Scientology vibe to me. Um, and I'm just like, always amazed when they get that shot from behind and you can just see how many people she's talking to in there. It's it's quite amazing, not to mention, and that's just in person, not to mention all the people that are um, listening around the world. Yeah, it's it's very um, innocuous. The uh, like the, no crosses anywhere. Um, <laughs> to confront people with the crucified Christ or anything. It's all, but very Scientology um, as far as the vibe of the atmosphere. She's very Hollywoodish. I mean, I know they're, they're in Texas, but like, you know, I mean, like, I don't want to talk about this woman's appearance for an extended period of time. I don't think that's fair. So not just her, also, Joel also is, um, you know, in full makeup and he's got his plastic face out. But you know what? You're right, Ben. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be judging people's appearance. The important thing is that she is a shape-shifting lizard. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's uh, play a clip. Um, this one, is she talks about the miracle ripple effect. I believe when we begin to put our little in the hands of Jesus, that's when we're going to see miracles. That's when we're going to see the blind see, the cripple walk, the lame jump. We're going to see relationships mended. We're going to see the ripple effect of what we have given to Jesus effective on this entire earth. You know, when we give, no matter what it is, how great or how small, that giving serves and helps others. But do you know really what that giving does? It powerfully transforms the giver. Do you want to transform life? Do you want to live at your highest level? Do you want to see God do things not only in your own life, but in the lives around you? Be that extravagant giver. Have that mentality of, I'm never empty-handed. I've always got something to offer. And watch God take your little and make it into a lot. Make it into much. So, um, to me, that's like what I said before about starting to get into the prosperity gospel. Um, it's really the giving. It's really about enriching yourself. Um it's almost like an investment. It's not really about actually giving up anything of yourself because the idea is like, don't worry, you're going to get it all back and more. 
And so it's not really a sacrifice. It's really about enriching yourself. And, and make no mistake about it, it's about enriching the Olsteins. Because what they're really saying is, give us money. And a lot of people do, which is why um, they are as rich as they are. And, you know, if you've listened to this show, you know that what Jesus told people to do is to just give every, don't, don't be generous in your giving, just give everything. Um, you should have nothing. You should live as if you're poor and give anything that you have to the poor. And that is not at all what the Olsteins are teaching or doing. Yeah, it's, it's very magical thinking like where you invest um and you get something in return like where it's some sort of an exchange with the divine in order to get something um not a christian concept at all um and it's also i find it interesting that the the musical cue and the emotional um crescendo happens at the moment where they start talking about giving and it's like giving with all you can give um that's really like the crucial it's not the altar call that's crucial. It's the uh, the call f- to give. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing about the music. I mean, what you're really seeing here, this is a commercial. It's an advertisement. It's to, um, and it's theatrical. It's to move people emotionally um, through music and this type of flowery language, ultimately to enrich the Olsteins. It has nothing to do with helping the poor, which was the main purpose of what many people think the historical Jesus actually taught. And it's what they have Jesus saying in the Bible. Clearly, his message was overwhelmingly about the plight of the poor. And all of that here is completely lost. And it's turn, it turns into, well, just give to the Olsteins. Now, to be fair, they don't specifically say in that clip, um, give to us, but um, they are certainly accepting donations, and um, I think it's pretty clear if you were sitting in those seats that um, they want you to be, as she says, extravagantly giving, um, and I think that she means to them. Yeah, it's a weird, I mean, in the media age that we live in now, I think it's very inconvenient for megachurch pastors to be on camera saying specifically, like, give me money. Um, I think they've developed a whole dog whistle way of um, couching that ask. And I, I feel gonna, like yeah. that's fully fully uh, on display here. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's uh, I don't know if they can really get away with um, being as overt as like the um, prosperity megachurch preachers of old, like Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart, but um, you're right. It's all still there. And uh, it's working for them because they're obviously raking in an absolute fortune from this church. Yeah. Tax-free, I should say. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the other, that's the real, um, the real scandal. They don't say, like, go and give, they don't say what Jesus says, like, go give all your, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, because that's not who they want the money to go to. They want the money to go to the church, and the generic church becomes the Olsteins. All right, without further ado, let's uh, push on. You may not have exactly what someone is asking you for, but do you have a hand to pick up your neighbor? Do you have an encouraging word to put someone on their feet? You know what I learned that day that I grabbed my phone, tried to ignore the fact that I didn't have what that man needed? I realized I do. I do have something. I have the name of Jesus. And next time I run in that situation, I'm praying. God, thank you that you'll give that man supernatural opportunity. That, Father, he'll understand his value and his worth. God, I thank you that you're doing things he could never, ever, ever expect that only you can do, Father. Bless him today, Father. Enrich his life. You see, I have a prayer. And that prayer is powerful when you give it in love. When you put it in the hands of Jesus, it has a ripple effect. It makes a difference on this earth. You see, that's extravagant giving. I have so much to say about this one. I know. This might be the most maddening clip of them all. <laughs> so I don't know what kind of... If, if you listen to earlier in that um, clip, she's talking about she's in her car and somebody comes up begging for money and she realizes she doesn't have any cash on her. And then that's where the clip takes over. So she offers him prayer, et cetera, and, and she goes on. And I can only imagine what kind of car 
uh, Victoria Olstein drives. Um, I'm sure she has more than one car. And um, everything that Jesus talked about was uh, to be giving to the poor. And I'm sure that guy really could give a shit about her quote-unquote supernatural opportunity that she just prayed for him. And where is he right now? I mean, did did that super supernatural opportunity come to him? I mean, she didn't have the money. She could have said, "Hey, let me take you uh, to my house. Let me uh, let me wait here. I'm going to come back. I'm going to buy you a home. I'm going to give you my car." And I know you mentioned that. And I'm not saying she should have done that. I'm saying that's what Jesus would have said. And what instead she did is offer basically nothing except flowery language that she could yell out to her megachurch megaphone, but it meant absolutely nothing to that person. Yeah, it's even worse than that. Like in, when she tells the story in the story, it's a big laugh for the church because she starts looking at her phone and ignores the guy uh, pretending to be on the phone. And so the guy goes past and then she says, but next time, Next time, I'm going to make sure that even if I don't have money, I'll pray for the guy. And her prayer is bullshit, too. Like, her prayer is like, oh, I pray that he has supernatural opportunity. I pray that he'll realize his own, uh, have the riches of his own worth. Like, it's like this language means nothing. It means nothing. This man doesn't need, like, to understand his own worth. He doesn't even need an opportunity. What he needs is some money to get a meal. He needs like an oppor- like an opportunity, like a place to live. Um, y- y- assuming, like we don't really know what situation this man was in. And John's right; like it's hard to say. Oh well, she should do this and she should do that. But that is what Jesus teaches, and I don't like this whole. Well, that's not practical. Yeah, that's like the whole point. The sayings of Jesus are not practical sayings. They actually go against everything that's practical. It's not practical to turn your cheek when somebody hits you. It's not practical to give them their your uh, cloak when they when they steal from you. It's not practical to love your enemy. It's not practical to uh, to give all your belongings away to the poor. It's not practical to hate your family. These things are not practical, but that's not. The question, it's whether they're what Jesus says to do. And according to the Gospels, it is what Jesus says to do. And I also just think of the the example, I believe it's in Luke, of the, uh, the widow who gives away all of her money at the temple. And Jesus says she gave away more than everyone else because she gave out of her poverty and it was all she had. And that's really what giving is like, according to Jesus. It's supposed to be totally sacrificial giving like when you don't have like if you have if you could only give when you have that's not really giving according to what Jesus says in the bible so yeah it's not practical it's very radical but we're not the ones claiming to follow it victoria olstein is the one that claims to follow it right and it's not a small thing in the new testament because your literal salvation depends on this um when when I don't have the uh, the verses in front of me, but Ben, you can correct me, but it's something to the effect of when someone comes up to Jesus and says, you know, I want to be a disciple of yours. And Jesus says, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And, um, or else you can't be a disciple of Jesus. So the idea that Victoria Olstein is sitting there in her BMW or whatever kind of car she has and turning a blind eye, but but she's willing to give a prayer. And then somehow that is living up to the standards of what Jesus wants of his people, it's totally bastardizing everything that we think the historical Jesus actually taught. Yeah, and I mean, the example she gives before that is when, um, uh, I think Peter and John, or Peter and James, are going into the, uh, the synagogue in Acts, and there's a lame man who's sitting by the gate, and they don't have money to give him, and so they heal him. Right. They heal him. They don't just say a prayer for him like, oh, I hope he gets an opportunity that he needs and keep your chin up, guy. And, you know, that's radically altering his life in a way that, um, you know, I don't think that Victoria Olstein is able to heal people. But I think that, again, it's not to just ignore the person and it's not to just give when you're able to. It's a radical... 
um, sacrifice or a radical act to change the material uh, situation of the person who's in need. Yeah, and it's I I don't understand her point that does she have some kind of close connection with God that God is willing to grant her this miracle of quote unquote supernatural opportunity for this guy more than that guy himself has. She's putting herself on this, a pretty high pedestal um, to say I have the this connection with God that I mean I'm sure the guy could himself pray for a supernatural opportunity quote unquote. And by the way, when she said supernatural opportunity, I laughed out loud the first time I heard that um, because obviously she couldn't grant any sort of like supernatural healing the way the apostles in the Bible do. So she has this really vague understanding of a miracle to say, well. Uh, I pray that God will grant him supernatural opportunity. I have no idea what that even means. Yeah, it's a very like it's like being judgmental without being judgmental on the like this person obviously just like has done a bunch of things wrong that he needs corrected. He just needs like I don't know a hand up to to get out of here. Yeah. Also, um, the, it seems to me that the giving that she's describing when she when you're giving to other people or to the poor. Um, it seems like just a prayer is fine, but it seems to me that when you're giving to the Osteens, um, you should give a lot more uh, financial support. Yeah, I don't think that they ask for prayers necessarily in the offering plate. This one is a little bit more controversial. Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. So Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit inside of him. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this shows me how little the Osteens are grounded in any doctrinal standards. Um, It's really just an Osteen-centric church where they can just invent whatever theology sounds good in the moment. Because this is heresy by all Orthodox standards. Um, It's something called adoptionalism, where Jesus is not eternally God. He was just a man that um, God made um, his son and adopted him. Ironically, there were those in the early church who held to that heresy. And uh, we have some variations in the early manuscript tradition of the Gospel of Mark uh, that describes Jesus' baptism, where instead of saying it's the voice from heaven when Jesus is being baptized says, uh, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But there are some variants that say, you are my beloved son. Uh, today I have begotten you. So yeah, um, there are, and that's why this was a big controversy in the early church about, uh, and there were whole groups of adoptionalists. But over time, it became considered a heresy by the Orthodox Church, and there are no real adoptionalists um, that I know of in any like um, main in any large denominations around the world. Yeah, that's why I included this clip. I mean, first of all, it's uh, super controversial um, and it is heretical. Um, but like John said, it's fascinating because um, the text that we're talking about is in Mark, which is our earliest gospel. And Probably the right variant is the today I have begotten you um, or today I've begotten my son, which is very adoptionist, adoptionalist sounding. So it's just interesting because it was something that, yeah, was a wide held belief, uh, we can assume, in the early church and was wide held enough that it had to be clarified and uh, made heresy. Um, when orthodox orthodoxy was beginning to form, and it was like uh, super early on, um, it was a heresy. So, um, yeah, interesting. I think that this idea has a little more traction in charismatic circles, um, and part of that is probably like a lack of real doctrinal grounding in an official way, um, because I think there's a lot of charismatic universities that produce charismatic preachers um that are sort of on the fringe of um evangelicalism even and also just because of like charismatic beliefs in general i think uh there's a lot of like weird heretical um stuff that is similar to some stuff that the early church and early christians believed 
The next clip has to do with uh, letters from the apostles. So often we forget what we should remember. Our victories, our success, the good times. You see, some people feel guilty if they're having fun. Sometimes we remember what we should forget. The pain, the heartache, the loneliness. You see, we can't allow the things of the past to control our life. God doesn't remember those past mistakes. He doesn't even remember the things that people spoke into your life. All he knows is he wants you to move forward today. He wants you to remember <laughs> the good. Remember what he has done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, man, uh, did she like really narrow God down? Like, uh, God just doesn't remember. Yeah. So it's like, okay, he doesn't even remember the sp- people that spoke against you. I-, I don't know what she's even talking about. Like, but yeah, God remembers. Um, I don't think God can forget. That's probably basic theology 101. Um, you know, yeah, I have to believe that, uh, that her phrasing was just poor. I can't yeah, believe I think that she's she... speaking metaphorically yeah. too. But <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it is, but but it is a poor choice of words because it, it just comes across um, totally heretical. I've never heard anything like that from a pulpit before. It's like good advice at the beginning, I guess. You know, don't dwell on the past and don't be like bogged down by like the suffering and pain in your life. But I also feel like it's very not. Um, I don't find that really to be like a message in scripture. Like scripture is like those that suffer will be comforted. Um, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. Like the ones in prison are the ones that Christ represents. Like it's more like continue to suffer. Um, you know, the ones who don't care for you now will be thrown into the fire. And um, when the kingdom of God is enacted, you'll be the ones that are comforted. But yeah. I don't really see it as like, oh, just keep pushing on and be encouraged. Don't dwell on the negative. Yeah, this uh, don't dwell on the past is actually a theme of hers that she really comes to a lot. I was going through a lot of her videos, and that was something she just kept coming back to. And I don't know if it's necessarily bad advice, like you said. I don't think it's something that's like overwhelmingly biblical. Now, I'd have to do like a big study because like we always say, you can make the Bible say anything you want. You'd probably be able to find verses that would support that idea and then verses that would support the exact opposite. Um, But yeah, I think um, like God is with you in your suffering is more of the message as opposed to God will end your suffering. And and that's why I come back to this idea that ultimately, to me, this is just a self-help manual. That's what they're doing here. These are people that have regular problems like everybody has in their life. And they think the way, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's a really pragmatic approach. Like, well, I go to my pastor and my pastor helps me with my problems or I go to my psychiatrist and my psychiatrist helps me with my problems. And um, what I'm noticing is like the the biggest like YouTube preachers or just the most popular Christian pastors, that's pretty much like the types of messages they're giving. They're all like really milk toast. They're not controversial. Like we're like we're really like digging to find stuff that is controversial or that we can point out. Most of it is just really I would say really bland and kind of boring unless you're looking for that type of encouragement. Like if you're someone that's susceptible to that kind of thing, it's honestly, it's not much different than you might hear from like a psychic hotline. Like um, it's, it's just the same type of thing. People have like those type of problems. And then she gives you some kind of like happy words, vaguely reminiscent of something that's in the Bible or an analogy for something from the Bible so that they can label it as Christian. And then you go on with your life. It's very Deepak Chopra, like yeah. a Christian version, right? Absolutely. It's like, it's like, let me teach you all this positivity crap, and I'm going to say that it's rooted in, like, the Bible, just the way Deepak Chopra, like, says, oh, it's rooted in, like, uh, physics, Um and like the new age, but like physics. And then you like explore and you're like, well, it's not actually rooted in physics. It's just a bunch of crap. And like, you know, the Olsteins, like I th- the original idea that I had for this segment was to try to find like a verse that supports what she's saying and a verse that like 
is contradicting what she's saying. And I really feel like you could probably do that pretty easily. Um, because like John said, the Bible is um, gives like varied um, different pieces of advice and theology and different authors have different perspectives and um, it doesn't align completely. Um, I mean, the reason this appeals to people is because I don't think that people want to um, decompress from their work week on a Sunday thinking deeply about anything. So they want to go and have someone tell them something that makes them feel good, maybe feel energized by music, and go home. And I think that that's where the evangelical church is right now. They don't want their political beliefs um, challenged. And so the politics is like left either left out or like explicitly endorses like re reactionary politics. But yeah. a lot of times I think it's just left out. I mean, it's like the reactionaries go in and their political ideas are never challenged. Like the church is not a place where like anything is challenged. It's just there to make you feel good. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, I, they're very careful not to be political. Um, and that's a little bit refreshing, I guess. I mean, it's, it's not like this, um, right wing, like white evangelical Christianity that's like pushing, you know, Trumpism and uh, white nationalism practically. And um, the, the Olsteins to me seem like really determined to stay out of that sort of controversy. And they're, when, you know, they do a lot of like close up shots of the congregation as they're talking and they have a very diverse audience. Um, so like you said, like, I think they're really careful. They don't, it's not like the church I grew up in. They don't, there's no fire and brimstone at all. There's no warnings. Um, it's super positive, but yeah, the ultimate points that they're making, you could make them from a Buddhist perspective, from a new age perspective, from a, from an Islamic perspective, um, because it, they're just so generic and, um, and I'm sure that is actually a criticism that, evangelical Christians make against the Osteens because it's not like they're not criticized like like reformed Christianity and evangelical Christianity a lot of them have big problems with with the Osteens for some of the exact reasons that we're talking about by the way yeah and I also just think that um one of the things that we're finding with the podcast is that the sayings of Jesus that are recorded in the gospels or the early theology of Paul actually is something that is challenging um, and does challenge some of the preconceived notions that Christians have about family, for example. So, um, yeah, they're just preaching this sort of like generic stuff. But I think part of what we show on this podcast is there's stuff in the Bible that like really challenges that. Um, or like we talked about here, like the giving away of all of your wealth. Like there are parts of... Um, Jesus' message that like really challenge that and are challenging, and they're just completely ignored. Okay, let's go on to the next one. It has to do with family. This should be fun. I want to talk today about our families, making sure we are covering our families, making sure we are loving them, considering them, not just putting them on our to-do list, but putting them on our to-love list. Every day, are you loving the gifts that God is giving you? You see, children, the Bible says, they're a heritage. They're a gift from God. See, we're not just supposed to work for them. We're supposed to enjoy them. We're supposed to celebrate with them. Our spouses, they are a gift from God. They are someone to help us grow and learn and live life together. I mean, Ben, so anybody who's listened to the show from the beginning probably knows exactly what I'm about to say. But um, the Bible does talk a lot about families, and what she's talking about comes from the Old Testament, and it's very true. Um, but the perspective from the New Testament is completely different, where it talks about you can't even be a disciple of Jesus unless you hate your family. Uh, and, and it specifically says, like, your, like, it names, like, your father, your mother, your children— um, yes, so G we, Jesus talks about how you must hate your children. Um, and then it talks about, uh, she talks about how, and your spouse is a gift from God. Well, the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, it's better not to have a spouse. It's better not to get married. It's better not to give your daughters in marriage um, because the Lord is coming any day. And again, it shows you just the perspective of like 
modern American Christianity going off into the future and how different it is than what the New Testament actually says. Yeah, it was a real tension in the early church uh, regarding uh, marriage, even after the point where uh, Jesus' returned, seemed like it wasn't going to happen. Um, there was still people that were holding on to celibacy, and um, you see it in some of the later uh, Christian texts after um, the Bible was uh, written. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what John said. The New Testament we've shown is very anti-family. Um, Jesus's sayings are talking about families turning against each other, not recognizing earthly families, so that seems very different than what Victoria Olstein is talking about here. And when, um, and when we talk about hating your family, um, we mean hating your bloodline fa- family. Uh, but Jesus wants you to embrace your new family, uh, which is um, your brotherhood in Christ. And be willing to or outright reject um, that earthly family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, let's go on to the next one. I think we have another clip uh, that has to do at least partially with family. You see, it was the love that raised Jesus from the dead. Love is powerful. Love covers all. Love is the end all, be all. When you don't know what to do, God is saying, love them anyway. Just love them anyway, because it's a powerful force. He first loved us so we can love others. So I think about that scripture and I think to myself, how can I spur my family on? I have to consider it. That means I have to meditate on it. I have to think about it. I can't do it the same way all the time. I don't put it on autopilot. I consider, I meditate, I dwell what works best. In this situation, I just can't get over um, like how nice it is, like not having to listen to sermons like this, because <laughs> I, I, you know, the pleading with you to believe something or say saying everything with these emphatic voice inf- inflections that are um, supposed to be so meaningful. Where I, I prefer that, like a academic approach, where you can just say what you mean. Like you don't need to say it with all the fanfare and all the flowery language, um, because it to me it's not really very effective. Like she's saying something very simply there, and um, she doesn't need all that. Yeah, I agree. It's a big it's a big turn off from my perspective. I don't like uh, emotional manipulation, <laughs> and so when I feel like that, I have a like a strong spider sense uh, towards that, and I feel like the the whole. Um, the whole visual and audio experience uh, from the old scenes is totally um, fixated on emotional manipulation, like the music, the lighting, the production, the inflection in the voices, the emotional crescendo, the the overly positive attitude. So yeah, it's uh, it's offensive. So again, uh, to talk about something as a magical power. She's talking about love, and she, like, makes an allusion to Paul, I think, in 1 Corinthians. Like, love enduring forever and love being the power. But what I find interesting is, like, she's using it in almost the exact opposite way of the way Paul is using it. Paul is saying, forget all that magical shit that you guys are doing. Love is what's really important. They're like, the practical, material love that you guys have. That's what's going to endure after everything else fades away. All the magical prophecies and tongues she's basically saying like love is the most magical powerful force there is and um it was so magical that it raised jesus from the dead maybe i'm misreading what she's saying but i almost feel like that's her implication yeah i think you got it right i mean um she's not really very clear um but again like i i don't want to like waste too much brain power trying to get to the bottom of this because i i find it again pretty vacant this is like and and i'm not questioning her intelligence i'm sure she's a very intelligent bright person but as far as like the content of these sermons go like you said it's a far stretch away from you know spurgeon or to me it's just kind of like dumb surface level platitudes that like i don't really feel the need to waste my time on Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I think that they're an egregious version of this, or 
we've we've I've highlighted a couple notions where there's sort of like magical thinking. Um, and you see this in like the charismatic movement with the idea of faith and the idea like what she's saying of love, where these things are not like material concepts. They become like some sort of like magical tools. Um, okay, this one is called Balloon of Worry. There's a technique that I use, and I've used it for years, and it works for me. You just got to find something that works for you, right? So when I had these concerns and these troubles, I imagine a big helium balloon, big, beautiful balloon, red, red balloon. It's a power color. And I began to put those troubles in that balloon. And I imagine myself holding that balloon by the string, holding it out in front of me with those troubles. And I look at that balloon and I let it go and I release it to God. And I say, God, thank you that you're bigger than all these troubles. Thank you that you love me and that you said you'd perfect those things that concern me. So I'm going to give them to you. These troubles are just going to go right at your feet, Jesus. You're going to take care of them. You see, sometimes I have to admit, sometimes I have to let go of a whole bouquet of balloons. So um, I have a lot to say about this one, too. I think that like this is a big theme of hers. Again, like obviously, like a lot of people in this world have anxiety and worry and so that's why like i'm sure when she does content on that it's it's popular so which is which is why she's addressing it but could not that statement be made completely outside of christianity uh or completely outside of any religion just i just imagine it's just a thought exercise i imagine all my worries as like a balloon that just floats off and I don't have to worry about it anymore. And in the Christian context, like, let God worry about it. But in, uh, in another context, like, it just drifts off into nowhere. It's kind of meaningless. Um, what gets me, though, overall, and, like, this is, like, a big problem I have in general with, like, Christ- Christianity or um, uh, Christian preachers, is this idea that it just kind of ignores, like, what science has to say about anxiety and worry. And there's never any encouragement to like, oh, like you're suffering from anxiety. Like she, in one of her things, she talks about a friend of hers that was like, so like wrought with anxiety that she couldn't go to work. She couldn't function. And my, my advice to someone like that is go see a doctor. But of course, um, nothing like that coming from Victoria Osteen. And um, there's just kind of like, again, these, I'm sorry, really dumb platitudes that are like, actually totally unhelpful for someone suffering from real anxiety and real worry. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have uh, experience with seeking mental health help and being in therapy, and my therapist never advised me to fill a helium balloon and <laughs> let it float up to the sky and that it would take away all my anxieties and worries because that's fucking stupid. <laughs> Um, and like that, again, it's like a magical thing. Like that's not even like helpful. Like it would be helpful to talk about your feelings and then maybe release a balloon. And that balloon has some symbolic meaning, but also you had your feelings like actually be vocalized and started to deal with or like, but like I would seek professional help. Like it doesn't like this is a like this is an extremely dangerous thing that I think that happens in churches where it's just like, um, it's not really that serious. And this is like the Olstein the their whole thing. It's like it's not really that serious what you're going through. Just push through. Be encouraged. Every your blessings right around the corner. And it's that's just not true for most people. And so like and if you're dealing with like actual depression and um you could say the same thing about cutting yourself. Oh, like I just cut myself and I feel like a release of my anxiety from it. But that's not healthy behavior. Like that's not a healthy way to deal with anxiety. And that's what I feel like this is. It's like not as damaging to yourself as cutting yourself, but it's also not dealing with the problem. It's doing the same thing. It's just not dealing with the issue that's there. Yeah, to me, it's completely unempathetic to somebody that's dealing with real mental problems. Talk about how, how, what the kind of serious, like, um, deep darkness that 
depression causes in people or that anxiety or that people that are living with serious anxiety and you say to them put it all in a balloon and just watch it drift off up to heaven give me a break that's not going to help anybody in reality and this is like i said like probably like the biggest problem that i have with the church in general is kind of a rejection of academia and science whereas like pastors are not um psychologists and they're not doctors and they shouldn't act like they are but they do and they give that kind of advice and then people have the false impression uh, a lot of congregation members that oh i'm having this psychological disorder i should talk to my pastor it's and in many cases that's the worst thing to do but it's definitely not the ideal thing to do um so any pastors listening to this please for the love of god when someone comes to you with serious mental problems please just refer them to a doctor. Um, don't try to treat them yourself because you don't know what the hell you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there are roles that your pastor can play in your life if that's what you want him to do, but those roles shouldn't include historian, scientist, um, ther- like uh, psychologist. Like Those are roles that like doctor... Um, those are roles that should be reserved for people that are actually professionals um, because pastors screw that stuff up all the time. And um, it's, it's not the, there's not the same accountability even um, for a pastor that's giving you therapy as there is for a professional where there's like other safeguards in place and like um, other professionals. And you're in and like now you're connected into a network where like hopefully other people can uh, help you with your care. And, you know, like, my first reaction to this clip was sort of, like, laughing. I was like, you know, who cares about red balloons? Is Pennywise the clown in It? But <laughs> um, but it is. Like, it's really scary, and it's super damaging. And it's one of probably the most damaging things is there's a huge stigma in this country around mental health already. And the church has an opportunity um, for whatever ill they do in the world, they could have an opportunity to normalize receiving and seeking mental health in their congregants. And I feel like instead what they do is this kind of crap and it's not good. Yeah. And in the church in general, they often view mental illness as not a real illness because most pastors, thankfully, if you are diagnosed with cancer, would refer you to go to a doctor. But when you have depression, they're like, you just need Jesus. And, um, I think that's bullshit, and I think it's um, rude and insulting to the people that are actually suffering from this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll say is we did mention Scientology before, and everyone is rightfully critical of Scientology's rejection of uh, medical science. And, like, the church shouldn't be following those footsteps. They shouldn't be playing in the same playground. Like, it's... Well, I would say that Scientology has followed in the footsteps of Christianity because yeah. it's, Christianity has always had an awkward relationship with data and science, and um, and this just goes right along with it. But, I mean, the church really needs to evolve with their understanding of mental health because I've seen this um, in the lives of a lot of my friends and people that I care about. Um, if you're if you're suffering with a mental illness, it's not demons, it's not lack of Jesus in your life, and no, putting it in a giant red balloon isn't going to help you in any way. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we have two clips left. Uh, one serious and one that should be kind of fun. We'll do the serious one first. You know what I loved about Mary and Martha, uh, Mary and Mary, was the fact that When they remembered the stone, they didn't stop. They kept going. And when they got to the tomb, the Bible says that they looked up and they were so surprised. The stone had been rolled away. The stone was not blocking the tomb anymore. The obstacle that was trying to defeat them had been rolled away. Think about that just a minute. What they were worried about, what was there, is now gone. Mary walked into the tomb and saw the angel, and the angel declared to her, are you looking for Jesus? He's not here. He's risen. He's risen. (laughs) So, okay, Ben, 
So I'm sure you have a lot to say about this. I hope you'll indulge me to let me start. But uh, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay, well, first of all, the the account of the resurrection that she's quoting from is kind of like a hybrid version between Matthew and Mark. Um, but uh, it really depends on which gospel you read, because if you read uh, the gospel of John, there was no angel, and uh, they found the tomb empty, and they they cried. Mary, It was just Mary, and she cried because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And um, so every version of the story is different, and she's kind of created her own gospel by uh, with the account she told. I, I found it interesting that she didn't mention the earthquake when the stone was rolled away and the angel descending from heaven. She's telling a version of the story that best makes her point. The other thing that I had a problem with is that um, she's taking the story of the resurrection to basically talk about how you have obstacles in your life too. Like they didn't know who was going to roll the stone away. The, the point of the resurrection, I think most Christians would say, is a much larger theological point. So this gets to what we were talking about before, how um, they take a story from the Bible to make whatever point they want to make, but it's not the point that the author of that passage was trying to make. Yeah, it's always about, like, even the stone being rolled away was just about an obstacle that needed to be overcome through, like, can-do-it attitude. Um, yeah, it's the the resurrection accounts. Well, first of all, you and I both have a huge problem with this sort of, like, um, fifth account that's a combination of whatever elements you want to combine from the other accounts. Um, but doesn't match with any account that we have of the resurrection. And that's what she's doing here. Like, it, her account of the resurrection that she's talking about doesn't match with any of the biblical accounts of the resurrection. It's not Mark, it's not Matthew, it's not Luke, and it's not John. Now, it has elements from Matthew and Mark, but because it combines those elements, it's not Mark's telling and it's not Matthew's telling. So let me let me dive into some of the details that she gives and talk about what the various... Um, gospel accounts say about it. Um, so the women at the tomb, she go, she talks about how there was Mary and Mary, um, and that's true for Matthew, but in Mark it was Mary, Mary, um, and Salome, and in Luke it was Mary, Mary, Joanna, and quote-unquote other women, and in the Gospel of John it's just Mary Magdalene, which would not make sense, which is a total contradiction to what she said. Um, she also didn't mention the guards at the tomb. In Matthew, there were guards at the tomb. I would think that would be kind of relevant to the story. Uh, but Mark doesn't mention that, neither does Luke or John. Um, and then um, the stone being rolled away. Who's going to roll away the stone? Well, um, was the stone rolled away in Matthew? Uh, no, it wasn't, but it was already rolled away in Mark. Um, and in Luke, it was, and in John, it was. And um, again, she doesn't mention the earthquake. I would think that would be kind of a, a prominent feature in the story. Um, and then who was seen? She says, well, there were the angel in the tomb told her such and such. Well, that's true in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Gospel of Mark, it just says there was a young man inside the tomb. Now in Matthew, it's the angel was outside sitting on the stone that, that um, rolled away after the earthquake. Um, and in Luke, it was two men that just suddenly appeared standing, um, inside the tomb, um, before the visit by the disciples. And then later has the women saying they were angels. Um, and then in John, it was two angels already inside sitting at the head and feet where Jesus had laid, um, after the visit by the disciples. Um, so it's all very complicated. So I could go on with that, but all that to say is that um, the version she actually, and this just shows what um, Victoria Olstein is not that concerned with, like um, the historicity of this story, and or even proving that it's historically accurate. She's much more interested in like getting to her underlying point. But by doing that, I think people should be aware that like she did just create her own account. What she was talking about was not found in any one gospel. She just invented her own gospel um, in order to get to the point that she wanted to make. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like helpful to think of those accounts, too, as um, like exaggerations as time goes on to, to meet different criteria. So, 
you know, uh, we have a, a place in the Gospels where it says that, well, what if the disciples stole the body? And um, so you have guards at the tomb. Like, they couldn't have stole the body. There were guards there. Um, right. You know, you have an angel sitting on top of the rock. It's pretty clear what happened. It's like, well, a man is testifying. Well, maybe it would be better if an angel was testifying that he raised. Um you know, and eventually it's Jesus himself that's there in John, um, but he's so glorified that no one even recognizes him. Um, yeah, like you said, earthquakes and tombs breaking open, people coming back from the dead, uh, the the sky blotted out. Matthew has like, um, like these crazy events happening from the crucifixion onward um, up to the resurrection. Um, but those don't make it into, uh, Olstein's telling of the story. Um, and, and, you know, to be like, not to be overly critical because this is literally what everyone does with these accounts is they just create their own account. Um, you'll very rarely find someone that will stick with, um, a singular account of the resurrection without intermixing some other details or saying like, and we know from this account that, uh, you know, Peter and uh, John were running to the tomb and racing after the fact. So, yeah, uh, they don't uh, compute and they conflict. Yeah, and my point ultimately is that we're talking about Victoria Osteen and her... Um, you know the, the purpose that she's using this and like i said she's not interested in and in, uh getting this stuff like accurate to what the bible says but it's actually impossible to tell a cohesive story so it's it, because that's why it's hard to blame her because if you're going to tell a singular story of the resurrection based on the bible you're going to be contradicting one of the other gospels and it's impossible not to um uh, i mean the gospel of john is totally nonsensical based on what the story she just said. Um, but that's, again, doesn't seem to be a major concern of hers. And to be fair, like Ben said, that's pretty much like every Christian minister. And so many people just like do this like unconsciously. So you read the accounts, like unless you, re and, and I mean, I did this for years too. You don't read the accounts next to each other. And so, and you're so, they're so familiar that you just like, combine the elements uh like the telegraphing together until you have your own um story that combines all the the like it sort of erases the conflicting elements and like makes the harmonizing elements like form your own conducive tale but that's not the same story that the gospel writers are each telling okay we are down to the nitty-gritty our final clip this one is another important theological point, so get ready. Years ago, that the way hunters used to trap monkeys was they would take a big barrel and they would fill it full of bananas. And at the end of that barrel, they would cut a very small hole, just big enough for the monkey to get its hand and arm through. Now the monkey, unaware that this was a trap, would stick his hand in there and grab a fistful of bananas. But the problem was, as long as he was holding on to those bananas, he couldn't get his hand out of the barrel. You see, he could have just simply let the bananas go, taken his hand out of the barrel, and gone on his way. But see, because he was holding on to the barrel, he was trapped, and he couldn't get away. See, we can't let yesterday trap us. We cannot be trapped in the past when God has a bright future. Well, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this one, <laughs> Okay. Years ago, hunters who are hunting monkeys... <laughs> where, who were these hunters? Like, years ago, uh, there was a big, like, mon monkey hunting group of people because, like, monkey meat is... I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, again... Why even use the Bible? Because you can just use this. You can use anything. Uh, it shows you this is basically, it shows you the respect that she actually has for the Bible, in my opinion, because when you're using a story like this to illustrate a point the same way you use like the resurrection narrative, um, to me, it, it shows like that there's really no difference. Yeah, like I actually been researched this <laughs> and, uh, there, I have. I was not able to find any actual reference to any sort of monkey hunting technique that employed this sort of uh, device. I 
feel like, I mean, I'm not certain that this might not actually be accurate, this story. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I mean, who hasn't had this happen to them where you reach into a jar <laughs> and you can't pull your hand out? I feel like this is the most like common human experience that's ever happened. And to transplant that onto a monkey hunt that probably never <laughs> happened, we don't even know what historical period it's from is uh disappointing yeah i mean i don't know i get like it's it's like the ultimate cringe for me when i hear pastors start like giving historical anecdotes or um because they're so dubious in their sourcing like i feel like she probably found this on the internet or just made it up out of thin air and it's like not even that great of an illustration for her point because the point is about letting go of the past. The past is the banana. Like, I don't really get it. Um, but it's it was kind of amusing. It's hard yeah. to believe that it's like, like how many thousands of people go to this church and they're sitting there like, yeah, the monkey hunt. <laughs> exactly. It makes me it's, laugh just hearing the, the opening when she says, she says it's so matter of fact, years ago. Hunters used to trap <laughs> monkeys, but it's like it's like what is the like like there's no attempt whatsoever to ground it in some kind of reality. It really would have been better to say this was a story that was told that makes a good point. It's better than she j- completely grounds it as if this is a this is a true historical thing. The yeah, other thing or is been like, like I, the other day I was trying to get two pickles out of a jar <laughs> and I couldn't get my goddamn hand out, and then I figured out if I just let go of one of the pickles. <laughs> like it didn't have to you didn't have to go on this whole like historical quest to find some yeah. nugget from the past like and I'm pretty know. sure a monkey would let go they're very That's smart. the other thing I was thinking like that's the real reason that was the real giveaway for me. I'm like I don't think I think a monkey would probably figure out pretty quickly, oh, I'll let go of the banana and I can get out of here. Like they're yeah. very smart. Right. <laughs> How long um, were the hunters just observing this monkey with his yeah. arm in the barrel? They're like, well, he seems to be trapped. Let's <laughs> not interfere just yet. We'll starve him out. He'll never <laughs> let go of that banana. Like, like They were just like, they didn't intervene. They didn't have any other plan that, like how to kill the monkey. They were just like, uh, just keep him in the barrel. <laughs> Wait, he's getting tired. We'll get him in a minute. All uh, right. J- just the intro, the way she says it, is hilarious. People were hunting monkeys. Just play the beginning. Just just play like the first couple of seconds of that again. <laughs> yeah. It's like our moment of zen. Years ago, that the way hunters used to trap monkeys was they would take a big barrel and they would fill it full of bananas. And at the end... <laughs> the way hunters used to trap monkeys. <laughs> okay. I mean, so where are these hunters getting all these bananas that they can just waste catching monkeys? Like that's another problem. They're like, bring out another barrel of bananas. We gotta catch another monkey. Have you ever heard of a monkey hunter? No, I don't know. The only, I mean, I, I don't. I like. I hate to grasp for some historical meaning in this lunacy, but like the only reason I could think someone would be hunting monkeys is if like the monkeys were somehow threatening some other. Like right. either like some Ecosystem area of encroachment or, or like or maybe they're capturing them for the zoo. Yeah, like I, I don't under I don't understand. But she didn't the, say that. She said hunters. Yeah. She was like the way hunters would trap monkeys. I don't know. Again, not an important part point. They the, put the barrels part. in like the middle of the jungle. <laughs> like I don't I don't I don't understand. And also, I, I don't understand said, how that'll work. Like, it also it's it also seems like like too much of an expense to trap a, a single monkey because That's what you, I fill, mean. It's like, you filled up an entire barrel with bananas. It's like how much did all those bananas cost just for I, that one monkey? I have because the monkeys think don't bananas stay good. were probably expensive too. Like I'm sure that they're not. So like where first of all like bananas are from South America. Where are they hunting these monkeys? Oh, there's so many problems with this narrative. The this story, I think. If you bananas don't last very long, if you fill up an entire barrel with bananas, um, I would think like that barrel of bananas might cost as much as like the value of the monkey. 
Yeah. So it doesn't seem like it would be like a very like profitable scheme these hunters have going. <laughs> the monkey hunters very quickly went out of business when the yeah, banana that's why we don't hear about it out of control. They were like, <laughs> we can't keep spending this on bananas. It's just not economically feasible, guys. Yeah, and what happens if like they just left the barrel out there? Like, are there monkeys sitting out there right now, just like <laughs> ah, like with their hands stuck in the barrel, like not letting go? They're like, we have two problems, guys. First of all, it's costing us a ridiculous amount of money in bananas <laughs> to catch these monkeys. Second of all, there's no demand for monkey meat. Also, like a banana is soft. <laughs> like I think they even if they don't <laughs> they let go, would, yeah. I think they could still pull their hand out. They probably would crush the banana in rage and then pull their hand out. They would probably, because we've seen this like happen, the bana- the monkeys would probably drop the bananas, pick up some sort of a stick, create some sort of rudimentary tool, and like start fishing the bananas out of the barrel. I think that she's projecting. I think what happened was uh, Joel Joel had a had a barrel of bananas <laughs> in the kitchen, and Victoria came in. And was like, I want one of those bananas. And she reached in, and then she she, she just would not let go. And Joel had to come sweetie, out. Sweetie, just let go of one of the bananas and get your hand bananas. out. Yeah, I think that's what actually happened here, and she's projecting. And then she put, she put it on these mythical hunters, monkey hunters. Yeah, she can only give so many autobiographical stories where she's like... Uh, you know, she already like exposed herself as someone who pretends to be on the phone when she's talking when homeless people come up and ask for money. She didn't want to expose herself as someone that gets her hand stuck in a, a barrel of bananas also. But uh then someone is probably gonna write in to us and send us a link like documenting like the complete history of monkey hunters and their banana trap. So... I would be happy to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's historical, I would I'm interested in finding out about it. I just am like skeptical. I mean it's possible. I think it's a story created for the point they were trying to make. But uh, like Ben said, I'm happy to be proved wrong. Um, So if this is an actual story, if anyone knows about it out there, about the the historical truth of this, please write in and let us know. Yeah, we were going to do an episode on the different views of salvation in the Bible, but I'll, I'll start researching monkey hunts instead. Yeah, I think this show from now on going forward is all going to be about monkey hunting. Well, I guess that wraps it up for uh, this episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoy uh, this format. We haven't done this before, but um, we do want to do it more. We want to um, respond to what actual pastors and apologists are saying and um, and kind of get our take on it. But we're always eager to hear what you guys think about it, too. Have a good night, everyone. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject.com at gmail.com Ooh.